0: Welcome to PICU Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep
1: Kamat And I'm Rahul Demania, And we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Today, we're going to present a case of a teenager with abdominal pain and MSS.
1: Okay, so here's today's case. A 15-year-old female is admitted to the PICU for intentionally ingesting a large amount of aspirin tablets. She had some epigastric abdominal pain with some non-bloody, non-bilious emesis when she presented to the outside emergency department about 12 hours post-ingestion. She denies any neurological symptoms, including tinnitus, but appears anxious and is persistently tachypneic. At the outside emergency department, about 12 hours post-ingestion, her salicylate level was 45 milligrams per deciliter. The patient took about 250, 325 milligram aspirin tablets. She's previously healthy, denies the use of illicit drugs or alcohol, is not sexually active, and pertinently has no allergies. So Rahul,
0: to summarize key elements from this case so far, this patient may have ingested potentially toxic amounts of aspirin, has suicidal ideation, and Rahul, one key pertinent negative at this stage is she has no neurological symptoms, including tinnitus. Rahul, let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. What are some of the key history features in this patient?
1: Well, Pradeep, as you mentioned, key history features is the fact that the patient has suicidal ideation, ingested potentially a toxic amount of salicylates, and is persistently having emesis, which brings up the concern of dehydration. On physical exam, her vital signs are stable, except she is mildly febrile at 38.8, and she was noted to be persistently tachypneic, and this will be. Very important later on as we discuss the metabolic and respiratory abnormalities. Also, the rest of her exam is negative. She has no rashes, any previous scars of cutting, etc.
0: So Rahul, based on the above history and physical exam, it appears patient could have GI symptoms of early salicylate toxicity. To continue with our case, the patient's labs were consistent with a 12-hour salicylate level of 45 mg per deciliter, Her liver function tests were normal. Her BUN creatinine as well as a coagulation profile were also normal. Her anion gap is slightly elevated around 20. Her urine pH is six with a normal spec gravity and has mild ketonuria. Her urine pregnancy test was also negative.
1: Okay, to summarize, we have a 15-year-old girl who potentially ingested toxic amounts of aspirin. And this brings up concern for life-threatening injury, and possible loss of life.
0: So Rahul, let's start with a short multiple-choice question.
1: Let's get into it. So on the boards, they can ask you about a teenager who was previously healthy, had a suicide attempt, and now presents with confusion, increased respiratory rate, fever, and diaphoresis. The pupillary exam in this patient will be normal, and labs would be remarkable for an initial pH of 7.45, a low PCO2 at 19, a low bicarb at 11, and an elevated anion gap at 20. Serum potassium slightly low at 2.9, and serum glucose slightly elevated at 180. They can also put in the test question that the urine ketones are weakly positive. So as we dissect this question, what do you guys think is the next best step in management? A, sodium bicarb infusion. B, insulin infusion. C, Oral activated charcoal, D, hemodialysis.
0: Rahul, the correct answer to this uh, multiple choice question is A, sodium bicarbonate infusion. So remember, any patient with previous history of suicidal ideation who presents with confusion, fever, diaphoresis, with the above labs which show a mixed respiratory alkalosis with high anion gap metabolic acidosis should be highly suggestive of acute salicylate poisoning. Rahul, just as a side note, remember that any patient you get in your ICU who has poisoning, always make a point to examine the pupils because it may point you towards a possible toxidrome. Now, the other choices uh, for this multiple choice question, insulin therapy is not the correct answer because the serum glucose is low patient's pH is high, so this is unlikely to be decay. And this is how they trick you in this question is by making the urine ketones weakly positive. While activated charcoal can be used, especially uh, followed uh, by sorbitol, which is usually given with the first dose, we need to be cautious about its use in a patient who's confused, who has altered mental status as our patient in the case here. We do not have a salicylate level at this stage, so the questioner offering dialysis, especially hemodialysis, which is the dialysis of choice, should not be the immediate first step, although should be considered given her neurological symptoms.
1: That was great, Pradeep. Before we go into diagnostic management, I want to particularly highlight the basic science correlates with aspirin poisoning. Remember the mechanism of action. Aspirin is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor, which blocks prostaglandin production and has antithrombotic effects by inhibiting platelet generation of thromboxane A2. Salicylates are also weak acids, and they can interfere with the Krebs cycle and specifically, very important, uncouple oxidative phosphorylation. Now, downstream, this uncoupling leads to acidosis, heat production, and hypoglycemia. Well, although not common, neuromuscular irritability manifested as peritonia, i.e. the inability to relax muscles, and extreme muscle rigidity can develop, and this further contributes to the hyperthermia and increases the risk of rhabdomyolysis. Salicylates induce fatty acid metabolism, and this results in ketone production. As in our case, the ketones were weakly positive. And remember that ketones can further compound the anion gap metabolic acidosis. Lastly, disruption of the electron transport chain really causes a dissociative shock picture in which you are getting adequate oxygen delivery. However, the tissues are unable to uptake the oxygen. Pradeep, if you had to work up our patient with salicylate poisoning, what would be your diagnostic approach? Rahul,
0: just a comment before we get into the specific labs. You need to understand that salicylate poisoning happens either acutely, as in our case here uh, with the teenager who has a suicidal ideation, or a chronic form of salicylate poisoning Uh, is seen typically in the elderly population who are usually taking aspirin uh, therapeutically, okay? So they may have an inadvertent overdose. Because the pathways for salicylate elimination are fully saturated in this elderly population, when they take an additional amount of drug, it can lead to accumulation of free salicylate in their blood, thus prolonging the normal half-life from two to four hours to as long as 20 hours. So what I'm trying to say is that in the elderly who chronically take aspirin, if they inadvertently take a higher dose, they can have the manifestations of toxicity at even a lower dose that they have inadvertently taken. So the plasma level of salicylate that is required to elicit symptoms tends to be lower in chronic poisoning than with acute salicylate poisoning. Also, the other thing to remember is in chronic poisoning, the salicylate level may not kind of clinically correlate with the toxicity that
1: one sees. So salicylate poisoning should be suspected in any patient with possible ingestion of known or unknown drug, tinnitus, nausea, vomiting, tachypnea, and altered mental status as seen by our case, and elevated anion gap metabolic acidosis, And in the case of salicylate poisoning, remember that a patient can also have a concurrent respiratory alkalosis first prior to the anion gap metabolic acidosis. Any elderly patient on chronic aspirin therapy, say for osteoarthritis, who presents with agitation, confusion, hallucinations, slurred speech, seizures, and coma, they can have symptoms of chronic salicylate poisoning and the salicylate JAG Is a term which refers to restlessness and mental aberrations that resemble alcohol intoxication. So, your diagnosis will likely be confirmed by an elevated serum salicylate concentration. And what is important to note is to check the salicylate level every three hours as toxicity can be delayed. This is especially important in chronic poisoning as the over reliance on drug levels can lead to underestimation of the severity of poisoning and delay implementation of therapy. Once you get your level back, you can stratify the level of toxicity.
0: So Rahul, generally a level of 15 to 30 milligram per deciliter is usually considered as a therapeutic level, especially when aspirin is used for inflammatory conditions. But within one to two hours of a single ingestion, the level can reach 40 to 50. Now, significant toxicity starts to manifest at a level around uh, 45 and above. Early clinical manifestations include, uh, you know, emesis, abdominal pain, hyperventilation, and and then followed by neurological symptoms, uh, especially vertigo, tinnitus. A plasma level of 50 to 70 indicates severe intoxication. Patient can have fever, sweating, listlessness, and incoordination. At levels exceeding 75, patient is at risk for hallucinations, seizures, cerebral edema, coma, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and even cardiovascular collapse.
1: Excellent points, Pradeep. Other major testing to consider is to make sure that these patients get acetaminophen level to rule out any co-ingestion, check the acid-base status with electrolytes to assess for an anion gap, Send a blood gas, also get a quick glucose level as hypoglycemia can be relatively easy to treat. You want to send a UA, which will give you a urine pH, and make sure to think of a pregnancy test, especially clinically indicated. As with many ingestions, renal function and liver function can help you stratify complications of poisoning, and make sure you consider getting a head CT if there are signs of cerebral edema or persistent altered mental status.
0: So Rahul, if the history, physical, and the diagnostic evaluation in this patient is pointing you towards a salicylate poisoning, what would be your general management framework?
1: All right, let's break this down. The big picture is that management is based on supportive care and elimination of salicylate. Gastric decontamination can be for patients with known ingestion within the past hour and no risk of unprotected airway. You want to use a one-time dose of activated charcoal at one to two grams per kilo. Multiple doses of activated charcoal may be indicated for b or enteric-coated preparations. If salicylate levels don't respond to activated charcoal, then polyethylene glycol may be used via a nasogastric tube. But let's just focus on airway protection. Intubate for respiratory failure or airway protection in the obtunded or delirious patient. Remember your ABCs. You also want to consider intubation, especially if this patient is heading down the route of needing dialysis. It is important to avoid a low respiratory rate, as any decrease in pH from a rising PCO2 can enhance movement of salicylate into tissues and the patient can actually worsen clinically. Prior to intubation, it's always important to consider the acid base status of the patient. And as these patients can have a metabolic acidosis and with their abdentation hypoventilation, consider giving a 2 MEQ per kilo bolus of bicarb prior to intubation. Pradeep, do you mind just commenting a little bit about fluid management and other therapies in this patient?
0: Yeah. Rahul, uh, let's chat about the fluid management in this patient. In general, I like to use lactated ringer solution because normal saline in these patients can sometimes add to the anion gap acidosis and lower the pH. Now, one hallmark uh, of the therapy used for salicylate ingestion is the alkalinization of urine till serum salicylate level is either less than 40, or the metabolic acidosis has resolved, or the patient is asymptomatic with a normal respiratory rate. I usually like to give one MEQ per kilo initial bolus of sodium bicarb which is then followed by three amps of sodium bicarb. Remember, one amp contains about 44 millimoles of sodium bicarb. So those three amps are added to one liter of D5W, and this is run at an infusion rate of 1.5 to two times maintenance. The goal here is to keep the urine pH greater than 7.5. I usually add some uh, potassium chloride as uh, hypokalemia can occur with this uh, sodium bicarbonate-containing fluids. And if there is hypokalemia, it actually prevents the alkalinization of the urine. I do serial blood gases, as well as I check serum K, ionized calcium, and serum magnesium and frequently, and avoid a serum pH of greater than 7.55. A low potassium or magnesium usually defeats the process of u- urinary alkalinization. Now, sometimes the plasma glucose may be normal in these patients, although their CSF glucose may be low. So, in case during therapy the patient has delirium, think about this and try to give them a dextrose bolus so the CSF glucose is corrected. Rahul, when should we consider dialysis in these patients?
1: Great question, Pradeep. Let's take it down to the basic science. Remember, prior to considering hemodialysis, of medications, you want to consider the water solubility, the size, and the volume of distribution of the compound. Remember that salicylates are water soluble. They have a small size, a low volume of distribution, and absence of tissue binding. And that's why salicylates are an ideal substance to dialyze. Additionally, while salicylates are protein bound at therapeutic levels, it's largely free at toxic levels. It's important for us to recognize that urinary alkalinization is not a substitute for dialysis. So once you get these patients on dialysis, it's okay to stop the urinary alkalinization. I would consider hemodialysis in any patient with severe signs or symptoms, including severe fluid overload, electrolyte disturbances, altered mental status, concerns for cerebral edema, acute kidney injury. And these manifestations should be really taken into consideration Regardless of salicylate level, plasma salicylate level greater than 90, regardless of signs and symptoms, should be a high consideration for hemodialysis and make sure that threshold is just slightly lower if there is kidney function impairment. Conventional hemodialysis is generally preferred, but hemoperfusion or CVVH is an acceptable alternative if hemodialysis is not available or if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. Always have close communication with poison control, as well as your clinical toxicologist. Salicylate poisonings can be extremely life-threatening, and the team-based approach with fine attention to detail is an important take-home point in these patients. Finally, as a follow-up, make sure you repeat the salicylate level every three hours until the level is clearly downtrending. Pradeep, this was a great episode. Do you mind highlighting where our listeners can read more information about salicylate toxicity?
0: Rahul, I would highly recommend that our listeners read the excellent review of salicylate toxicity by Palmer and Clegg from the New England Journal of Medicine, published in June 2020. Also, Chapter 126, page 1503 of the latest edition of Furman and Zimmerman's Textbook of Pediatric Critical Care has information on salicylate toxicity.
1: This concludes our episode on salicylate toxicity. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pickyudoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management card. Pick You Doc on Call is hosted by myself, Rahul Demania, and my mentor, Dr. Pradeep Kamat. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.